he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. Get me a gay, Mickey. Gotta get a gay. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where each week I clean out on all of the acting choices, micro moments, and magic and the minutiae that make a scene great. My name is Colin Trucker, and this is this is a big day. This is a very big day because why is it a big day? Well, at least when this episode came out, it's the beginning of October. And that means if you're a long time in the details listener, all 12 episodes, well, 11, and this is 12. Uh, if you are a lifetime in the details listener, then you know that I mentioned at some point in an earlier episode that October, we would be spending the entire month looking at these spooky nuances in horror movies. And this week, and I also mentioned this in an earlier episode, but it's happening now, here in this moment, this week. Uh, we're diving into the kooky cult classic 1971's Let's Scare Jessica to Death, directed by someone whose actual name is John Hancock and starring the incomparable Zora Lampert. Let's Scare Jessica to Death is not actually about a plot to scare the pants off of some woman named Jessica. It's so far from that, but it's such a perfect title that I'm not mad about it. And the way that I look at it is like, it's, it's also... It makes perfect sense that you would go into this movie thinking it's one thing and then for it to be all these other things instead. I think that that's kind of probably I'm probably putting this meaning on to Let's Scare Jessica to Death. But I think that that makes us kind of feel like Jessica because the whole movie is her questioning reality and thinking it's one thing. And then thinking, oh, maybe it's something else. And then really kind of being stuck in this like weird middle ground of like, I don't know what's real. And we kind of see that from the very beginning. I mean, Jessica in a nightgown early in the morning, floating around in a, in a, in a rowboat in the middle of a lake. I sit here and I can't believe that it happened. And yet I have to believe it. Dreams nightmares madness or sanity I don't know which is which I I love that I have no idea what she's talking about but I I just need to know how Jessica got into a rowboat in a nightgown at like 6.30 in the morning I just need to know how the movie got us there. So I'm hooked from the beginning. That being said, you probably are still wondering, well, what the hell is Let's Scare Jessica to Death actually about? I, I wouldn't say that this is an incredibly accurate description, but I did find this, this promo from the USA Network in 1988 when it aired on their um, prestige channel, and they described it this way. Let's take this somewhat disturbed person to a creepy old house in the middle of nowhere. Let's invite this bizarre young woman to live there too. Stay. Let's, oh, I don't know, scare Jessica to death on USA Wednesday at 9. I do think that clip is a little unnecessarily smug about the whole thing, and it's also not, like, entirely accurate. Jessica and her, and her husband, Duncan, they do move to Connecticut. They leave the urban decay of New York, and they go with their friend, Woody, who is 
Oh my God, Woody. Well, we, we're going to talk about Woody in a second, but like, I just need to talk about the, the 70s porn mustache and, and these eyebrows you could just hang your hat on. But anyway, he's like this like friend of them of theirs who, who goes with them to kind of get them started in this new life. Really, not just in the fact that they are moving to an apple orchard in Connecticut on the other side of a lake, like you have to take like a ferry to get there. But, you know, they've, they've, I think Duncan has sold everything, you know, they've, They've scrapped their entire New York life. So it's a new life in that respect. But it's even a new life just for Jessica because Jessica just spent six months in Bellevue or some other mental hospital. And frankly, at least from the first scene, you know, not just her in the boat in the nightgown, but, you know, going back in time to to the beginning of the story, you kind of get the impression right from the start that I don't think Jessica, I think Jessica got out a little early. Like, I don't know if this cake has finished rising. Like, I think, I think it's still mushy in the middle. Like, I think you might want to put a pin in that and just do a quick check. I really think this movie is like an underappreciated classic. And I, in particular, am having Beatrice Strait levels of love for Zora Lampert. Uh, she is, she's a New York actress. She did a lot of theater. You might know her. She was in uh, Splendor in the Grass and she played Warren Beatty's, um, eventually his wife. I had actually never seen the movie and then I watched the last scene. So I didn't realize they don't, they don't end up together in the end. So spoiler alert. But anyway, Zora Lampert, I, I do know she's in the end of it at least, but I'm sure she's in other parts of the movie as well. Every little moment that she gets she uses like as much as she can it's very reminiscent of like anna devere smith we talked about in the episode about rachel getting married or when you see her in nurse jackie or any other like brilliant thing that she's written and performed it's like it's about every moment figuring out like the best way to utilize it i was doing a little hunting here and there on youtube trying to find other things that she was in and i I need us to stop here and talk about Zora Lampert's Goya commercials because they are, they're gold. She is, I, I don't know if she is, she didn't come up with the idea, but I, she might be the first spokesperson for uh, Goya Oboya. I think that she's the voice of that. I think that it came out with her. So that's a pretty big claim to fame. But so and these are on YouTube and the links are all going to be in the ep- uh, episode description on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. These commercials are a must see, and I'm going to play one for you now. This is just to kind of set it up for you. It's it's Zora Lampert. You know, she comes on screen like any kind of spokesperson for something. You know, uh, who's kind of sidling up like, well, hey there, how are you doing? You know, like checking in on you. Like commercials are some kind of you know, social service, you know, and she's, she's really here encouraging us, uh, in a way that feels like, did we make an agreement, Zora, that I don't remember? Good. You have a can of Goya beans in the house, but are you tossing them into your salad tonight? Tossing them into your tuna? Adding them to your meatballs? Your soup? Your rice? Good. You're not just knocking them out with great taste. You're giving them fantastic nutrition. High potassium like banana, high fiber like bran, high protein like meat, but no cholesterol. Now, if one can of Goya beans in the house is so good, what if you had the whole Goya beanery? Goya. Oh, boy. Zora is, 
she's such a she's such a cheerleader for beans. You know, she's are you are you putting them in you tossing them in your salad and putting them in your tuna and and your soups and, and then and then when what I love about this and this is a little bit reminiscent of uh, Kathy Mitchell, who we talked about last week, infomercial queen Kathy Mitchell. I feel like Kathy. Kathy is talking to an audience of people who just need quick solutions and are kind of sliding into home base, barely making it by dinner time. You know what I'm saying? Like she is talking to people as if they are, if you've ever seen one of those infomercials where it's kind of like the, the people in the black and white sketches who are, you know, opening the cabinet and all the Tupperware falls on them, or they try to open the pickle jar and like, you know, the whole house collapses. But then if you get this, you get this thing, you get this thing, you know, insert product here, then everything comes back to, you know, vibrant color and they're living a good life again. Well, I think that Kathy is talking to the people who are having all the Tupperware fall on them. And I think that Zora Lampert is talking to the people who are like, they're responding to her questions and saying, yeah, yeah, totally. We're, we're, we're putting, tossing them in our salads and we're putting it in our tuna, uh, all of that. And, and she gives us this, good like she she does that when she does that good she does these like um what are the what what's the description for the for these little fists these oh good job fists you know what i mean like she's she she's practically like a ringside burgess meredith just encouraging us to get back in there you bomb rocky and take them down like she's our she's our 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 biggest championer you know to get more beans into our family but then the best i mean this the best part about this commercial is that is when she says, you know, now if one can of goya beans in the house is so good. Now you need to know the visual that there is this wall of 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 goya cans that she then peeks around and suggests, what if you had the whole goya beanery? What if you had the whole goya beanery? Like the whole goya beanery. Last week I talked about wanting to do like lip sync kind of performances, you know, like having different clips. And to me, Zora Lampert peeking around a wall of cans and cooing. What if you had the whole Goya beanery? Is is the first phone call I want to answer is what I'm trying to say. And I, what I love is that like this same woman, this same kooky lady selling beans, is the same woman floating around in a rowboat in her nightgown at like, 6.30, 6.45 in the morning in Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Uh, which, so I, let's, I, let's, let's focus on the matter at hand. Let's talk about the things that are spooky. I just felt like if we didn't talk about the Goya commercial, then I don't even know why I have this podcast is, is really where I've landed with that. But basically what happens is they, they've, they've bought this house, the Bishop House, and uh, the old Bishop Place, I think that's how they, they describe it. That's how the places are always described in these movies is the old X place. And so when they get to the house, they discover that there's a squatter who's been living there because she thought nobody, you know, she thought the place was abandoned. And they decide to let her stay. It's this girl, Emily. And what I think is interesting about this is that, like, we, we have a sense right away that, like, Emily is trouble. And there's a version of this movie that could have us questioning the entire time whether or not... Emily is indeed this this vampire haunting the house or is she just this squatter who's trying to seduce Duncan and and Woody and has sort of a strange just magnetic quality like is she just this mysterious woman and is Jessica just insane
What I like about this is that we kind of know early on that, nope, she's definitely not just some squatter living in the house. Like, Jessica might be losing her marbles, but she's definitely not wrong about this one. And it's because when they first get to the house, she sees that there's somebody sitting in a rocking chair on their front porch, and we only see just a sliver of who it is. But what we do see is some... Uh, red hair and I think we see a bit of like some green pants and lo and behold Emily has red hair and green pants and so I, it's it's cool that like the movie gives us that many hints but is still playing with this idea that Jessica's losing her mind because now it's not just us questioning the movie now we're watching what's happening to Jessica we know in some way that she's not crazy. It's kind of like the spirit of the title of like, oh, let's scare Jessica to death. Let's watch Jessica lose her mind. Well, we know that Jessica is, we hear internal monologue from her that she is not telling them, she's not telling Duncan and Woody everything. She's not telling them when she sees something and then it's not there anymore. She's not letting the questioning of her sanity come back into the conversation. I think it's okay, we've done everything. We've left the city, we've sold everything. We're going to live this smaller, quieter life in Connecticut. Let me not rock the boat, no pun intended, to when we get to Jessica in her nightgown and a rowboat. Um, anyway, Emily is, of course, trouble. And they uh, eventually they go to this antiques dealer to you know make some money to sell some of the stuff in the house. And one of the things they find in the attic is this framed picture of the Bishop family that had lived in the house previously. And the antiques dealer tells them the story of how uh, apparently the daughter of the family had drowned in the nearby lake and now legend has it that she is a vampire haunting the house and, and haunting the area. And of course, spoiler alert, at least from my point of view, it's true. And it's interesting because it's not just that Emily is just this vampire who is now just out to suck their blood and live an eternal life. She, the, the, the movie is not just the movie's not satisfied with just being a vampire story. It's also, there's elements of gaslight. There's elements of Emily driving Jessica insane. And there's clearly some psychic connection. There's some idea that, I think there's a suggestion that Jessica hearing voices is not just her being crazy, but be, could, could be her being able to connect with the other side. They have a seance one night. On all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house. I'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. A toast to my bride, Abigail, and to all the bishops. Abigail. Abigail. Oh, oh, 
The ideas are really that she's the only one who's hearing all of these different voices and all of these different um, spirits that are that are living in the house because that she because she doesn't want Duncan questioning her sanity, she she just dismisses it like oh you know it's so sad like you know nothing happened we threw a séance and nobody came, but in reality, and this is you know Zora Lampert just amazing acting like she. They finish the seance and she's like wiping tears from her eyes and just laughing it off like, oh, oh well. But uh, of course we know that she is, she's connecting with something, but she doesn't know if it's just her losing her marbles. And Emily is aware of the struggle that Jessica's having. And in a way, this, this Emily doesn't even need to be a vampire, at least not in the kind of traditional mantra sense, because she's a vampire energetically and emotionally you know she starts to toy with woody and and his attraction to her and of course she starts to and, and does very easily seduce duncan he's very much attracted to her and one night she comes on to him and it's the movie in some ways could just be about these these three lost souls from the city kind of starting a new chapter in the middle of nowhere and crossing paths with this woman who's also a lost soul and you know is they they're the next to fall into her trap you know what i mean or she's just trying to create a sense of home for herself you know i mean i think that's also the other side of it right is that like if emily is the villain if she's the monster of the story it's also it's a very sad villain right like she's this this poor girl who drowned You know, just to talk about this seance scene for a moment, it's such a great display, I think, in the entire movie of the intensity and the and the nuances, really, of Zora Lampert's acting. So much of it, I mean, it's hard to kind of give examples, you know, that are just audio because so much of, of what's interesting about how she's acting is the juxtaposition of, of what her facial expressions are saying versus what she's actually saying and the way that she's saying it. She doesn't follow a familiar cadence when she talks it almost seems like all of the syllables in her sentence kind of get swung to one side or they kind of get scattered in in like surprising places i think when she's telling emily the story about when she's had kind of a you know an experience with with interacting with the other side in her past and she talks about the story of of connecting with her father have you ever had anything like that happen to you well like, like what? Like, um, once I was going to your concert and uh, I was afraid I was going to be late and uh, I was very exhausted around that time because my father just passed away and uh, I woke up and suddenly I saw my father and I heard his voice. He was calling to me, Jessica. It's probably me begging for her to be on time. <laughs> for a change. <laughs>
By the way, yes, that was my cat Marco meowing in the background. Um, but anyway, back to the matter at hand, Zora Lampert. Uh, she's, there, there's that one part where she says, And uh, I was afraid I was going to be late. This, you know, this is one of those tiny little nuances that I get obsessed with. But she does it in this like very specific way. There's, you can hear it. You can hear that there's, there's this kind of like, you know, uh, inflection that she puts on it. She kind of bulges her eyes a little bit like, oh, you know, like she looks at Duncan when she says it. Um, and then he makes a joke later about how um, the the voice that she was hearing was was just him, you know, begging her to be on time for once. And, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I see. This is like a running joke that Jessica's always late, which is also a great little telling detail about who she is and, and all of kind of like the, the iceberg underneath the surface about Jessica. We actually get a bunch of little things in that little speech about her father passing away. And when she says, I was very exhausted at, at that time, like to me, that just reads as like mental exhaustion. Like I think this is when the breakdown was happening. And I just think there's, there's something really interesting, this connection between her, her mental health and her, I don't know, whatever kind of uh, psychic ability this might be or whatever kind of connection to the other side that she has, whatever that is, um, we don't ever really know. That's never actually defined. You know, we don't, like, we don't really know why Emily is able to get into her head and is able to become one of the voices in her head. We don't really know what she wants with Jessica because I guess I just assumed that like any vampire, like with Duncan or with Woody, that she just, you know, she wanted them, you know, wanted to use them like, I guess, many other men that she'd that she'd used. All these other guys who have these cuts on their faces and their necks, you know? Though it's interesting that uh, she does, event, you know, she does, you know, make a victim out of Duncan. She does cut him. She does uh, bite him. You know, whatever the case may be in, in the world of this movie. And he kind of, you know, becomes one of these, I don't know if they're undead, I don't know if that makes him a vampire as well. Point being, um, Woody, she kills, like Woody dies. And I want to talk about Woody just for a hot second. We're all kind of wandering spirits, you know? Uh, he's very good looking. He's very, he's very good looking circa 1971. He looks like the kind, he looks like, it's like your uncle in like, in like his, uh, in like an old photograph, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, the way that he looks with the mustache, with the long hair, like this kind of free spirit hippie vibe. It's like, okay, this is this is Woody when he went by Woody and not whatever his real name is. You know what I mean? And he's a very interesting character in the movie because it, it does seem like, oh, maybe he's just kind of like the foil for Emily. Like maybe he's uh, he's attracted to her and he's drawn to her and there's really no no involvement with Jessica's story or with Jessica and Duncan. But... Woody is actually, he's this interesting kind of proxy for the audience um, in that he is, it's, you know, I talk about that a lot with Jane or with Mark in, in the comeback, is that Woody is the one who's seeing things most clearly. Because it's certainly not Jessica. Jessica is seeing things about as clearly as Valerie did. You know, she has her moments, but for the most part, the whole world is a, is a mess of different colors that, that we don't live in. And Woody is... In particular, he is seeing what's going on between Duncan and Emily. And there's that one night, like it's uh, when they're all having dinner and then uh, Jessica goes to bed and then uh, Woody's going to go to bed and Duncan and Emily are still up. Well, I'm very tired. I think I'll go up. Good night. Good night. 
Take care of your wife, babe. You know, that doesn't take away the fact that he's still attracted to Emily, and that tells me that she does still have some seductive hypnotic power. There's some way that she's connecting with them that's similar to the way that she's connecting with Jessica. But I think he's also just an interesting character in that he's gone with them up to Connecticut to this house to kind of like help them get this orchard started. But then as he tells Emily on the beach one night, like, I don't really know what I'm going to do from there. I might stay here. I might go somewhere else. Are you going to live here too? I don't know yet. They asked me to. I'll stick around and help Doug get started with the work in the orchard. Then uh, who knows, huh? probably move on to me i also see woody as someone who does a lot of things in his life you know i mean that he he worked in an orchard for a little while and then maybe he i don't know works at a tiki bar by a beach and then maybe he's a carpenter for a little while and then maybe he's i don't know uh, a nude model uh for a for a you know drawing studio i don't know maybe that's just me now putting my own preferences onto things The scene at the climax of the movie where Jessica finds, spoiler alert, where Jessica does find Woody dead on that tractor is, I, that to me is, is probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie, just in in everything, in, in, in the way that the scene is made. Obviously, I'm not happy to see Woody dead, but I think at that point in the movie, I mean, Jessica has, uh, she's fled the house. She's already figured out that, that Duncan's one of them. Emily tries to to cut Jessica and turn her into a vampire as well, or whatever she's gonna do with Jessica. We never really figure that one out. She gets out of there, she finds that, that little girl, well, not really little, she's like a teenage girl. She finds her body in the, the case for, the, for Duncan's base. I have to say, I love any time in this movie that Jessica is running with this music in the background. two or three times and it's like my favorite thing to happen in movies and Zora Lampert's so good at it because it's just this like flailing exhausted desperate nuance to running um, but she's uh, running through the field you know it, and it's like you know early dawn and she's in the the nightgown so we realize okay this is the moment eventually she's going to be in a boat in this nightgown and she runs into the orchard and she turns and she sees this tractor and Jessica thinks it's Woody and she's calling out and she's waving Woody Woody and she and she runs up to the tractor and the way that it's shot the the camera is set up as if we are in the driver's seat of the tractor and then turning and looking back and um, kind of seeing alongside the tractor seeing the wheel turning the, the perspective that it creates of Jessica running to catch up with the tractor and we see that Woody is sitting there in the tractor you know hanging backwards it's like such a perfectly set up shot you know his neck has been cut and uh there's you know just this kind of like ominous boom of, of Jessica realizing oh my god he's dead and then this kind of it's sort of this indulged shot of just seeing the tractor ride away with Woody hanging in the seat with his head hanging back. Like it's such a it's such a set piece kind of moment. And then, and this is such a 
a weird little nuance I always think about. Jessica's just standing there in shock as the tractor's passing by, and then the sprayer, you know, all the, the water or whatever, the pesticides that are spraying, blows past her, and you can kind of see her react like she's being surprised by it. It kind of blows her, blows her to the side a little bit, and I, I can't tell if that was if that was something that actually happened or if that was, and what I think it really is, is that was Zora Lampert being like, okay, so that, that sprayer is coming and I'm going to use that and I'm going to work with that. I, I think what I like, what I like about it, I mean, cause I don't, I don't love death scenes, but what I like about this moment is there is some sense of clarity seeing the tractor just running. There's something so surreal about that happening. Well, meanwhile, all that insanity was happening upstairs in the bedroom. The fact that the idea that a oh, Woody would be out, you know, spraying the trees. Well, you know, th- this this vampire zombie and her legion of old men are up in the bedroom trying to suck Jessica's neck. It's just like, what the fuck? And so she's, you know, you know, even when you when you see the tractor, you know, before she gets to it, like this, this is not gonna be good. Like this is not gonna end well. And like, there's no way this is gonna work out. That, that Woody's going to turn and say, hey, Jessica, oh, my God, what are you doing here? Here, hop on. Like, it's not going to be like uh, the end of The Shining when when uh, Wendy and the kid get in a little, you know, snowmobile and get out of there. Like, that, this is not going to happen. And so, and so she, you know, when she sees him, when we have that kind of indulged moment of, of him hanging off the back of the tractor and rolling away, it's a very sobering moment. And there's like no playing with reality there. It's like, nope, this is exactly what this is. You thought this was Woody spraying the trees and he could help you. That was your delusion. The reality is he's dead on this little tractor rolling away. And, and like, who did that? Who like set that up? Like that's, I mean, all of that I don't I don't understand and I don't really need to know. Like that's part of the magic of this movie is I have no idea. Like why were all those old men there? Like what the fuck's going on, you know? I think the fact that pretty much any of the really kind of spooky moments in a movie happen in broad daylight, you know, like the there's the infamous scene when Emily and uh, Jessica go for a swim in the lake, and then um, Emily kind of starts pushing her underwater, and then you know starts freaking her out, and then uh, Jessica you know runs out of the water, and then she turns around and she sees Emily coming out of the lake dressed in that white gown that she found in the attic that was you know apparently the the. The wedding dress of the daughter of the Bishop family who drowned in the lake, and you know, that's I think that's probably like the iconic moment from this movie. And then after that is, of course, this great, you know, running through a field, staggering through a field, you know, dirty and flailing to the to the electronic score that I love so much, you know, and and the fact that it's happening at like ten o'clock in the morning. I mean, that just that feels so kooky. The fact that like there's this big scary moment and it's all happening at this really safe time of the day. And anytime that kind of happens, anytime there's um, moments of terror in broad daylight, I always think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think uh, even though there's a lot, you know, a lot happens in the middle of the night in that movie, uh, especially some of the first few kills and certainly the climax of that movie happening, you know, at, at dawn. I like that, that I don't 
this movie doesn't have any easy answers and I don't really need it to. I think that's what makes it so special is that I don't really know why this all happened. I sit here and I can't believe that it happened. And yet I have to believe it. Nightmares or dreams. Madness or sanity. I don't know which is which. It did happen. It definitely happened. But there's this feeling of like, does she trust herself to tell anybody about it? Like, who's going to believe her? Is she a reliable narrator? Can she really even be sure? Has this kind of like completely thrown her off her rocker at this point? Like, again, similar to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like at the end, um, and spoiler alert, I will end up talking about this more later this month. But at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, Sally is, you know, she's being driven away in the back of this pickup truck and she's just like bloodied and battered and screaming and, and hysterical and it's it's incredible and it's and it's chilling because you realize like oh yeah to survive what you just went through you'd have to be fucking crazy at that point like you survived but like most of you is gone you know and i think jessica goes into this movie just like already like on eggshells and i think by the time she's floating in that rowboat in her nightgown i think that she is completely scrambled you know to just stick with the eggs you know um and and like where does she go from here you know they ended their life in new york she can't go back to new york she can't go back to the farm uh there's nothing left what if you had the whole goya beanery anyway those are my thoughts on let's scare jessica to death and i i mean i could say so much more about it you know but i like to just hone in on a couple of moments but let me know what i missed let me know what you love about let's scare jessica to death you could drop me an email at in the details pod at gmail.com you could reach out to me on twitter at colin drucker um and of course if you want to just you know really put it all out there you can head over to itunes and you could leave me a review and hopefully a five-star rating um and you know especially as i'm still kind of new let other people know who are looking for new podcasts that, yep, this one's definitely worth subscribing to. Uh, anyway, next week, I am so excited. I got to tell you, I'll tell you right now, next week's episode is going to be Four Forgotten Final Girls. I am talking about four final girls from slasher movies that nobody's talking about, but who are doing something pretty special. And I cannot wait. I talking about final girls i could do a whole podcast about it so we're gonna at least do one whole episode on it anyway thank you for joining me for the celebration of let's scare jessica to death and all of zora lampert's acting choices all of the many micro moments and all of the nuances in the details bye